I'm just really grateful for you giving some time this morning. Obviously, in our previous life, we were going to have you speaking at St. Mary's, the University Church, uh, this month. Um, I was looking forward to it. I yeah. know. Everybody was. In light of that not being able to happen, you know, you very kindly said you'd, you know, do this Zoom call with me. I suppose, Dave, can you just tell me what your post and position is at the moment and, and what you're doing with Arosha? I've really got two main roles. Uh, my chief one in terms of time commitment is that I'm director of theology for Arosha International. Um, and I do that officially four days a week. And um, that involves both resourcing Arosha's global family, which works in more than 20 countries around the world, across six continents, helping them think through theological issues relating to the environment. And it also involves a more external facing role in terms of, of helping the wider global Christian community take care for God's creation, care for the environment more seriously and integrate that into their vision and work and mission. So that's my main role. And then two days a week on a house for duty basis, I'm vicar of a small parish in West London. Wonderful. You've got both an international role and a daily parish role. And Indeed. so that's bringing, you know, the global to the local and the local to the global on both. Of both. Well, that's quite deliberate and conscious. For about eight years, I just did Arosha full time. Well, mm -hmm. I say just, but I was also trying to do a part time PhD. Mm -hmm. um, and when that, when the PhD got finished, I, I had this really deep sense that I needed to be rooted more in my local community in my local church. I mean, I was already licensed to another church and, and assisting there, but I really sensed God's call to move back into parish-based ministry and to put down roots um, in the local. Uh, and so this, this opportunity at the neighboring parish to, to where we were based previously, and I'd been helping out in their interregnum, mm -hmm. it all happened very, very naturally. Um, so it's, it's worked out really well. I'll come on to how, how much access in uh, central West London you have to birds and uh, tracking them in a minute. But uh, before we do that, I'm really interested in what brings people to faith and their journey and just feel comfortable to share in whatever way you wish how you became a Christian, essentially, and your background as a child or... Yeah, no, I'd, lo I'd love, to, love to talk about that. Um... I'll try and keep it relatively concise. I grew up in a home where Christian faith was right at the centre. My parents were both missionaries with CMS, Church Mission Society, yeah. which of course is based in Oxford, yeah. um, although it wasn't then. And so I was born and grew up in India, in mm -hmm. Christian colleges where my parents were teaching theology, both of them. And so that was my world. And I never didn't believe in God, mm -hmm. but at various key points my faith became more personal and more real to me and I look back particularly to a point when I was about 13 and struggling with all the normal adolescent questions and my parents had encouraged me to go off on a Christian summer holiday camp and I was with a whole bunch of, of it was actually all boys or guys um, similar age to me and some of them were really enthusiastic about Christian faith and we had some very clear talks that kind of explained Christian faith at a level that a 13 year old could really grasp mm. and for me it all clicked together and I kind of look back at that as the moment where I guess 
I, I took my parents' faith really for myself in a conscious uh, way that, that made it real to me and, and invited Christ into my life. And so that would be like your confirmation moment of moving into making a personal commitment. To yeah, ab absolutely. And funnily enough, it was the same year as my, my actual confirmation, um, which happened a few months afterwards. So it, it actually fitted very well together from that point of view. Having made that commitment at 13, you're obviously still at school and still studying. What's the next way forward? How did you keep being supported in that journey? There are many, many different points I could, I could touch on. My time at university was important. And I think that was where my faith grew in a number of ways, particularly recognizing that my faith impacted on my attitude to society, politics, economics, environment, all those sorts of issues. I just began to think through some of that. I was, I was very passionate about justice. This was at a time, those who've got very long memories of the Brandt Report and things I like do. that. I North went on South. my first marches yeah, uh, as a student, became quite activist and, and was really you know, thrilled to find all the material in the Bible, particularly some of the prophets in the Old Testament and some of Jesus's teaching um, that, if you like, integrated the spiritual and the social and political. And for me, that's, that's been really important. Um, so that, that was a, another really significant time. And then straight after university, I, I did a teacher training year after finishing my degree. And I then went and taught in majority Muslim schools in Bradford for several mm -hmm. years. Uh, and that was a conscious decision. Um, when I left university, I sort of was wrestling with a sense of where did God want me to go, a sense, a question of vocation. I wondered about ordination, but felt I wasn't ready yet. Mm -hmm. I wondered about some kind of cross-cultural mission work, but again, felt I wasn't really ready yet. And so some wise person said to me, well, do teach training because that's a great preparation for anything else, um, whether or not you, you know, you might end up as a teacher. What was uh, your subject, then, Dave? So I, I did my degree in history and specialised deliberately in modern Asian and African history, particularly mm -hmm. on Gandhi and Gandhian yeah. politics. And that, you know, my own childhood background in India fed into that. I then did my teacher training in RE. Mm -hmm. So that was my first academic exposure to comparative religion, mm. although that was something that I'd, I'd really been exploring, wrestling with, sort of how Christianity fitted together with the religious experience of people from other traditions and other faiths. And so it was a very deliberate decision to go and teach in somewhere like Bradford, where the first school I was in was kind of 90% Muslim um, from Pakistani and Bangladeshi backgrounds. And I then worked for nearly two years in Bradford's Interfaith Education Centre, which was something that the local education authorities set up to help retrain teachers into teaching in a multi-faith context. And I worked as the Christian member of staff alongside a Muslim, a Hindu, a Sikh and a Jew. And that was absolutely fantastic. It was a really formative time. It was a stretching time. One of the most exciting things was that my role was to help people see Christianity as a world faith, not mm -hmm. just as, if you like, the traditional English religion. So I was involved in helping produce materials to help teachers understand that, you know, the inside of a parish church and Paul's missionary journeys isn't the only thing that RE is about. I contacted some of the mission agencies and others for resources on global Christianity and um, did some very, looking back at it, incredibly amateur videoing and editing with friends 
to produce resources from Black Pentecostal churches and Serbian Orthodox churches and churches from the Bradford and Leeds area that were from a whole variety of cultural backgrounds to show people that Christianity wasn't just, if you like, the English religion that a lot of indigenous people assumed it was. That's fascinating because obviously about 80% of the world has professed a faith. If in certainly your role uh, now looking at climate change and environmental sustainability across the world, being able to have this platform of experience and exposure has perhaps made you really the perfect person in the perfect place at the moment. Well, well, maybe. I mean, it's funny because until probably my mid-twenties and certainly until after I was ordained, I assumed that my lifelong specialism, if you like, in ministry would always be interfaith work and also multicultural church, you know, intentionally, culturally diverse, intercultural forms of church. And that was my passion. And, and I never dreamed for a moment at that stage that I would end up sort of specialising in environmental things. I find this fascinating because I too have a sort of background in interfaith. And in fact, that's where we met. We met in a interfaith environmental conference earlier on this year. We'd yeah. met each other before, but in terms of sharing time together. And what seems to me so exciting about what's happening in the world now is that there has not been a sense in which environmental issues and climate change is being boxed into a specific faith or area and there's an un there seems to be an understanding that this is a global collective conversation and call to action which all people of all faiths and none across the world need to engage with so what do you think about that yes i couldn't have put it any better myself i agree with that completely and if you like understanding that from a within a christian worldview from a, a theological perspective the first biblical call to care for God's creation is in Genesis 1, of course, where God makes us male and female in God's image and then entrusts us with reflecting that image towards the non-human creation. It's the first call to environmentalism. And it's not given to Christians. It's not given to Jews. It's given to all human beings. And therefore, I think quite rightly, environmentalism, creation care is something that we can share a huge amount with people of all faith traditions and none because it's our common human calling it's a vocation on everybody who is a human being yeah i'm reminded of uh, psalms there where we have you know psalm 24 the earth is the lord's and everything in it and you know it, we are all part and created from that so um it's really good to have the biblical foundations and and texts and scripture to return to when we need to. Obviously, the COVID pandemic has also had a global impact. And it's interesting that now with technology, we can hear stories about people's lives, people who've suffered from the pandemic, lost their lives and communities affected by it. How do you think this period, literally this last three to four months, is going to inform the environmental global movement in the future? And what is, do you think people's understanding of the pandemic will have on their understanding of environmental issues moving forward? 
there's two ways of answering that in a way. There's how I would hope it would change things, how I hope it would inform things, and how it actually might. And, and the two may be very different, and we don't know yet. What I certainly hope will happen, and I, I'm a bit disappointed that there hasn't been more of this up front and centre in the public discussion, is that the origins of this pandemic lie in our human misuse of nature. This is a, a zoonotic virus that has crossed from animals to human beings, not just because of wet markets in China, that, that may have been the, the initial point of transmission, but mm -hmm. that's symptomatic of a much larger way in which all human beings uh, in every culture, led by us in the consumerist West, have destroyed and transgressed the natural boundaries in a way that has made something like this inevitable. And scientists have been warning that something like this was very likely to happen. Of course, we've had SARS, we've had MERS, we've had Ebola, we've had AIDS, all of which are viruses that have crossed over to human beings. And there will be future and probably worse pandemics unless we look at our relationship with nature a lot more seriously. So that's the fundamental thing. And I, I'm not sure that message is coming across. You know, we've almost become too myopic. We've been looking so closely at how this has affected us as human beings, that we've almost forgotten where this virus has come from. And that actually the fundamental message is about our relationship with nature. And but, I agree with that entirely. And sorry, in the sense that has our focus on the here and now and you know the daily um, death toll and health issues related to combating the illness and the virus in a way taken our eye off the underlying cause and do you feel that there is a call to action for global faith leaders to understand that in fact we face an even greater danger if we don't look at this with a more expanded sense of both response and theology. I absolutely agree. And, and in fact, I, I'm in active conversation with a whole bunch of, of people, in fact, with several different groups, who are all saying, how can we get our senior faith leaders, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Pope, and others, and quite possibly those from other faiths as well, to come up with a a statement of moral imperative to our political leaders about the kind of world we rebuild. Because this is an unrivaled opportunity for choices about the kind of future we have. Who do we bail out? Do we bail out fossil fuel companies mm -hmm. and airlines? Or do we actually say this is the opportunity to build a truly sustainable economy, which is actually going to cause far less human suffering than our current economic system? And and is actually going to help people far more than simply the kind of boom and bust of going for unlimited economic growth of the old pattern that then for one reason or another, whether it's because of pandemics or it's because of recessions or wars or whatever, or because of natural disasters caused by climate change, there are inevitably going to be huge crashes if we keep going for the kind of unsustainable economic model that, that, that we had before all this crisis. So we have huge choices, and, and a lot of it is about the kind of economy we rebuild. But linked to that, it's about the kind of society that we want. And so many people have said, and you know, not just, if you like, the sort of busybody middle-class people, have recognized that this has been a kind of Sabbath, opportunity for time, actually for what really matters, 
even though that isn't how it was planned. And the opportunity to spend time away from the treadmill of work, 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 until you suddenly retire and are probably too ill to enjoy your retirement. Moving away from the kind of aggressive consumerism, recognizing that relationships in our local communities with the people down our street who we've been clapping with on Thursdays, relationships in our households, relationships even by Zoom with our families and extended families, that all of those things are far more important. There are lots of questions about the kind of society. And then there's been a lot about relationship with nature. And mm -hmm. you know, so many people recognizing that, that the blue skies, the ability to hear birdsong better, the fact that with emptier streets, wildlife has begun to recolonize certain areas that it hasn't beforehand. I don't want to make it sound all rosy because lockdown has also allowed illegal poaching in parts of the world, has allowed illegal deforestation in parts mm -hmm. of the Amazon, for instance. It's not all been one way, but there have been glimpses of a better relationship with each other, a better relationship with nature, a better relationship with time, and of an economic model that isn't driving us to just be slaves to a, an impossible dream. And that message has to be got across to our leaders so that they don't just fall over each other to try and rebuild their national economies and compete with each other, but they try and look at this globally and in a joined up way that, that can respond. And that's, that's why I say, you know, the difference between what I want to happen and what will happen, we just don't know yet. The surveys that have been done suggest there's a big public appetite for things to be changed long-term. Uh, for us not to go back simply to how things were beforehand. Um, I agree. And I think that the warnings we had about global warming and the um, statistics related to it have not really, are not shifting significantly by these three or four months. So we're still facing the same climate emergency, really, as we did in December 2019. But absolutely. we've now had a pause button to think about how do we want to go forward? How do we want to live as a society? Let me just, I completely agree with that. And I I'm, see movements and people and conversations. And even this, this movement related to Black Lives Matter and the yeah. way it's spread across the world has shown yeah. something of a compassion and a outpouring for justice and mercy in difficult situations, which you know, you can't say whether we would have had it before or not, but that extraordinary um, ability to connect across the world, I think is a new and very hopeful light. Yeah. But, but let me just ask you, as we sort of wrap up, I'm sure we could talk for at least an hour and a half, but you talked very beautifully then about perhaps something that I, is very close to my heart, which is seeing God in nature, and how looking at something very specifically and very closely, you see the glory of creation and have to ponder on it. Now, I know that birds are very close to your heart. True. And I just wanted to know whether like William Wordsworth looking at a grain of sand or Julian of Norwich with her hazelnut, when you have a, a young bird in your hand and, and are tracking it, what does that do personally for your relationship with God and, and your theology? Yeah, thank you. That's a, it's a great, and actually just behind my screen as I'm talking to you, I've got the bird feeders in the garden and there are, there are baby blue tits and great tits coming and feeding there and a flock of starlings trying to dive in as well. 
one of my great joys is to do bird ringing studies, which is scientific work that is licensed through the British Trust for Ornithology to track bird populations. And as part of that, we catch birds safely, put tiny rings on them, measure them, and then release them. And when we do that, to actually hold a, let's say it's a warbler, something like a, a chiff chaff or a willow warbler, that might weigh as little as 10 grams, and yet has somehow navigated, migrated from Southern Europe or North Africa, possibly even further south in Africa, uh, back to the UK, and has done that journey several years in a row, if it's been lucky enough to survive that long. And its brain is literally the size of a pea. And somehow it's got the ability, the intelligence, the hardiness to navigate across the Sahara Desert, across the Mediterranean Ocean, to avoid the guns of hunters, to find its way back to this particular little place. And we know from migration studies that birds come back to exactly the same places. And we've We've caught warblers in the same week in May, three years in a row, that we know will have migrated to sub-Saharan Africa each time in between. Um, and and oh. there's just something miraculous about that. It makes me feel humble. It makes me feel a sense of awe and wonder. It makes me realise just how much bigger than my imagination and perception and that all that our world's clever scientists yet understand, how much bigger God is. There's so much more we still can learn about nature and about our interdependence and our need to protect it for our own sakes as well as for its sake. If you like, there's something symbolic about holding a little bird in your hand, also about the, the use and abuse of human power. It's so easy for us to make it inevitable that species like this will decline and eventually even become extinct just by our carelessness and our greed. You know, if I hold that bird in my hand, I, I could kill it if I wanted, just like that. And yet somehow, and for a reasons that we perhaps still struggle to understand, God has entrusted human beings with a very special role. And there's a lot of controversy around the, the word stewardship. Yes. Because it can have a sort of managerial sense and to it. And, and yeah. maybe guardianship, maybe, I, I quite like to qualify the word steward with the word servant and talk about us as servant stewards, which emphasizes that we are doing this on behalf of God and we're doing it not for our own benefits, but we're doing it for the benefit of the creatures themselves and to the glory of God. But we have a special role, like it or not, and our decisions affect for good or for bad, the health of nature around us, the health of other species. And that's a huge responsibility that we carry as well as a huge privilege. And you would make that a responsibility and a privilege for all people of faith and not across a the world. Absolutely, no, I think it's limited. part of being a human being. Yeah. Um, absolutely. It's just been, you know, such an incredible pleasure to speak with you this morning. And thank you so much, Dave, for sharing what you have been through and your path to faith. I suppose I've just got one last question. Have there been dark moments for you? Have there been times when your faith has been challenged in a way you didn't expect? And you don't need to be specific. But yeah, no, one... I don't mind being specific. And, and the answer is absolutely yes. Probably the darkest moments have, have been around times of illness and bereavement and suffering. 
And I can think right back from the first days or first years of our marriage where we had repeated miscarriages before we were able to have children. And I remember going out for walks, kind of, you know, I, I would try and help my wife who was struggling even more than I was through this. Going for walks in the woods, it was in Bristol where we lived at the time, just letting God speak through the wind in the trees and the, the way that the trees responded to the wind by bending, not breaking. And, and it was simple things like that that I found God spoke to me through. And much more recently, as, as many people will know, Arusha suffered a terrible tragedy in October last year where three of our key leaders died and, and one other was very, very seriously injured. It was the couple who founded Arusha in the first place, Peter and Miranda Harris. Peter survived, Miranda died. And Chris Naylor, who, who, leads, who, who led Arusha um, for the last 10 years, and his wife, Susanna, who'd led the project in the Lebanon with him for many years, and both of them died. That was devastating. It was devastating personally. It's been devastating for us as an organization. You know, how have we made sense of it? Well, in all kinds of different ways. But certainly for me, going for walks in God's creation, arguing, wrestling, walking it through with God is, is, is the way that I process those dark times. And it's, it's so often within nature and seeing the way that nature can be battered and bruised and yet God renews the earth constantly. You know, after winter comes the spring, after night comes day. And those things can seem trite, but actually there's something very profound in those things and that God does bring renewal even through the darkest times. And one of the images that came to me after that tragedy in October was the phrase, the harrowing of hell. Harrowing is, it's an old Norse word, I think, that's found its way into the English language for plowing. Mm. And it's about the violent digging up of the soil using a plow, but in order that new life might come. And that's what it felt like in, you know, deep in my psyche. I'd had this harsh metal plow dragged through my emotions and, and others as well, many others too. And yet somehow from this destruction and from this pain, God was going to bring something new and something fruitful was going to be able to grow from that. And we're seeing just little signs of that in the Arusha family around the world, even during this time. I'm really touched that you did share that. And I think it's a really profound insight because a lot of people say, oh, I can't be a Christian because something terrible happened and God wasn't there for me. And therefore, where is he? And, yeah. and this sense that what happened on the cross has no relevance to our own suffering, but faith journey. Um, that's such a important insight. And when you were speaking, I was just thinking about Celtic spirituality yeah. and yeah. the Celts in the way that they were so close to the earth and nature in their way of exploring how they get closer to God and creation. I don't know whether you agree with that or have any sense in which there's a possibility that we could, in this new vision and this new world, bring people closer to a spirituality that is based around nature and the environment in a, in a wider sense. I, I would love to see that. And funnily enough, even, even in our little parish here in West London, as we've been discussing what kind of church we will be able to return to and the fact we're, yeah. we're very unlikely to be able to have services with everyone together in a building for a very long time to come. 
but we've we've started talking about open air worship and outdoor services where we can have more social distancing but also we can connect with god in creation as long as we make it in a safe place and have nice chairs and things then even some of our more elderly members can come and join us and it's very interesting because that's touched you know a lot of people who've loved spending a bit more time in nature as part of their permitted exercise during lockdown are now beginning to connect that to their faith in little ways and actually the idea of worshiping god outdoors and in nature just seems seems a perfect way of moving forward in this crisis it reminds me of uh, when i was a child i used to cycle across high park to go and listen to lord donald soper um, oh, yeah. He gathered crowds and he was an apologetic and he had an amazing impact in being out in the open air, preaching and engaging and drawing people in. So on that note, let's hope there are new forms of ministry that we can engage in. And also thank you so, so much for the work that you're doing as a theologian in this field and for bringing eco-theology really to the forefront of hopefully not only our Christian leaders, but world leaders for, for how we can change things for the better. Well, thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation and uh, look forward to coming to Oxford in due course. Great. We'll be having you in person soon, I hope. God bless. <laughs>